If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17? Remain standing if you're able. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but I'm just going to lead off by reading the first 10 verses. And since the chapter is so long, it's one of the longest stories in the Old Testament, I'm actually going to tell the story as we go kind of from there, okay? So 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socha, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Socha and Ezekah in Ephes-Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. I wonder if this is what David had in mind when he wrote Psalm 23 in the valley of the shadow of death. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung up between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, that last verse, verse 11, it summarizes so much of how we feel. Dismayed. And greatly afraid. It feels like threats are lingering around every corner. It feels like every decision we make is the wrong one. It feels as though we are certain to fail in every endeavor that we seem to attempt. God, we don't know how we're going to raise our kids. Not in this world that we're living in right now. We don't know whether our jobs are going to be here tomorrow or the next day. We, we don't know how our marriages are going to turn out. And Lord, if we were honest with you, if we were honest with one another, we would say we are dismayed and greatly afraid. That the giant is calling out to us. The giant of sin and death and shame and guilt is calling out to all of us and declaring our guilt in the face of a holy God. And our only hope is you. Our only hope is you. Our only victory is the victory in Christ. Our only promise is found in the resurrection. Oh, this morning, Lord, I pray that you would take this old, old story that we've heard many, many times and make it come alive for us once again. That we might not be greatly feared live in great fear and dismay, but that, Lord, we might live in hope and strength 
and the power of the living God. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So when we bought our house a couple of years ago, the, my favorite part about the house was really a part at the time that you couldn't see very well because like there was no yard. We had like the jungle. I've told you before about how um, Claire Connor and some of the youth thought we were buying a haunted house um, because it's really what it looked like. And, but, but there was this view that was, that was covered up that we discovered, and you can see from our house all the way over the Oxford Exchange. So we can, from our house in Golden Springs, watch cars go up and down the interstate. And so we were able to clear it out, and we, we did some dozer work and, and all of those. And so now you can literally sit on our back porch, and you just have this expansive view and it was my favorite thing when we bought the house and we kind of arranged our 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 living room so that you could see the view and you know we have the back porch screen and porch you got there and sit we go I'd go out there and sit all the time and drink my coffee and pray and do my my quiet time and man it was just it was just awesome like pristine right and I re- realized a few weeks ago that I haven't been paying much attention to the view anymore isn't that funny Something that used to totally captivate me. Something that used to totally just, just enrapture me in the moment of, of looking out over something so expansive, so, so wonderful, so, so powerful, so, so much bigger than me. Is now something I hardly notice at all. You know, it's one of the marks of the fallen condition that we grow tired of things. That we grow tired of things. That only sinners take things for granted. Have you ever thought about that? You put a, a bowl of food in front of your cocker spaniel, and it acts like it's the first bowl of food it's ever seen in its life every single time it eats. Doesn't take it for granted. Doesn't take it for granted. Do the same thing for your children. Give them the same meal every day. Slide it in front of them and see what they do. They take it for granted. They take it for granted, don't they? Only sinners can do that. Only sinners have the capacity to receive the kindnesses of God and to glimpse the greatness of God and to experience the the blessing of God and ultimately totally write it off as something that is an ordinary experience. Stories are like that for us too. There was a, there's a story that you told, and the first time that you told it, you told it with zeal and passion and energy and excitement. And then the next time somebody wanted you to tell it, you, you did the same. And then over time, though, your excitement and zeal and passion kind of deteriorated. Or maybe you heard a story like that, and you heard it over and over and over. And the first time, it like captivated you, but then you heard it so many times, you started thinking, yeah, I'm kind of over it a little bit. This morning's story is one that's similar to that. It's one, if we're not careful, that old sin nature will take over and we'll, we'll glaze over and we'll, we'll just say, I've heard all that before, I know all of that, move on to, to some more music or something, something that's fresh, something that's different. But I want you to think about what we're saying when we do that. We're literally taking for granted this majesty and splendor and faithfulness of God put up in one of its clearest displays in all of the Scripture. We're taking for granted the assurance that we have of victory in Christ given to us 1,000 years before Jesus walked on this earth. 
And so what I'm hoping is this, this morning that you'll have fresh ears to hear and new eyes to see. I'm hoping that maybe if you've never seen it in the way that I'm going to present it this morning, that it'll be a new perspective and that it will provoke us to deeper, truer worship of Christ. Because I'm convinced that what we see in 1 Samuel 17 is Christ. Christ. See, 1 Samuel 17, what I want us to see is you're going to see, uh, I've really labored through exactly the best way to frame it up. I mean, so it's a long story. There's a lot of words. There's a lot happening. So I really struggled through like the best way to, to frame it up and be able to present it to you all. So this is what I've settled on. I want us to look at three different conflicts between the different characters that are taking place in the story. And I think what we see uh, as we look at the conflicts of these uh, different characters, these three different conflicts between the characters, I think what we're going to see is the big story that we've been talking about traced out for us. That here, maybe we have the second most famous story in all the Bible. The most famous being Jesus going to the cross. But it has to be that the second most famous is David and Goliath, right? And so what I want us to see is that this first, this biggest story about the giant in Scripture is actually a parallel and is manifested and fulfilled in Christ a thousand years later. That the two most famous stories in the Bible run in parallel with one another. They run concurrently. They're, they're building on each other. And so I want us to see how David and Goliath traces the big story, the, the big picture of all of Scripture. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is that we've made a big mess. We've made a big mess. And this is the first story, the first step in understanding the gospel is understanding that we, meaning mankind, have made a big mess. The first conflict that I want us to really draw out and see is the conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. It's a national conflict, you see. It's the conflict between these two nations because the picture that we have in 1 Samuel 17 is we have one on each side of the mountain and there's like this ravine in between and there's, they're waiting to go and to see who's going to destroy the other. That this is one nation versus another nation. This is the nation of God, God's people against the nation, the uncircumcised Philistines that worship Dagon. And it's what we have to understand is they understood uh, war to be a religious experience. And so we have to see that what is in view here is whose God is really greater, whose God is ultimately going to strike down the other to prove its preeminence and to prove its power and might and the good and the protection of its people. And so the question begins to come up, why is it that this is taking place? Why are these nations pitted against one another? Why is there a conflict at all? And, and there, we have to understand that there is a promise that is kind of forms the backbone of 1 Samuel 17. And if you don't understand this promise, you can't honestly understand this story. And that's why it's so important to be a student of the Bible, right? Put it, be a student of the Bible, that you're reading it all the way through as, as often as you're able so that you can begin making these kinds of connections in your mind. People ask sometimes, how do you make those connections? And the only secret of the sauce is just reading it. Over and over and over and over. And eventually, Gail, you know what I'm talking about here. Eventually, you start seeing stuff and you're like, I didn't even know that was in there. Whoa, I just messed up my whole thing here. <laughs> Got excited there for a second. I didn't even know that was in here, right? And, and this is such an exciting uh, experience when you make one of those connections in your mind. Man, I'm, I don't know what this thing's doing here. All right. So 
I want, look, the, the promise that I'm referring to is Exodus chapter 33, the first three verses of it. Let's look at what it says. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. And so what I want you to see right here is, first of all, there is a command to follow in this, in Exodus 33, right? A command to obey. All right? Have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So there's not just a command to obey. There's a promise to believe. Do you see this? There's a command to obey. So there's responsibility on Israel's part to obey what the Lord has said. Go, depart, go where I'm sending you. But as you go, there's now also a promise that you can believe that as you go, as you obey me, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to send an angel that's going to walk and it's going to drive out all of your enemies, all of the Canaanites, all the Amorites, all the Hivites, all the Jebusites. Like they're gone. I'm going to handle it. So you just obey me and I'm, I'm going to take care of the rest. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So there's also a problem with both of these things. There's a command to obey, there's a promise to believe, but the people that are supposed to obey and the people that are supposed to believe are stiff-necked people. Does that sound like anybody you know? So, 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 the, so let's go back and, and ask that question again. Why is it that they're in the conflict to begin with? See, when, when God sends them, when he says, go and depart, we remember that what he was sending them out was to destroy all of his enemies in the land of Canaan. That Israel was supposed to go, and they were supposed to wipe out and drive out all of the other nations that were there so that they would be able to enjoy the fullness of God's promises in peace. So the Philistines are here standing on the other side of the mountain, staring back at Israel. And they are staring back at Israel as a sign of their own disobedience because they had not wiped out the Philistines. They had not driven out the Philistines. They had disobeyed the Lord. The only reason that this conflict began to start with was disobedience. Now, don't you know that in the beginning it felt like such a small disobedience? It felt like a small dis disobedience, certainly, right? We're just going to leave those people up on the coast. We're going to leave them be. They're kind of fierce. They're, they're kind of a handle to deal with. So we'll let them have their peace. They'll let us have our peace. It'll all be fine. This is exactly what we do. This is human nature. We minimize our disobedience. We make all of our disobediences seem so small and so insignificant. It's exactly what Adam did. If you think back to Genesis chapter 3, you think back to the, to the serpent coming and he's presenting it to Adam. And even what does he say? It's, it's just a little fruit. It's just a bite. Surely you won't die. This is a small thing. Like, he's a great big God. He's just not sharing well with you, right? Like, like it's, it's not a big deal. It's, this is a small disobedience. Think about your life. Think about your life. Porn's not that big a deal. 
It's just on a computer screen. It's a fantasy. It's not real. It's, it's, it's at a distance. I'm not actually engaged in the act here. Not a big deal. It's a small disobedience. Everyone's jealous. Jealousy's not that big a deal. Of course everybody struggles with jealousy. Everybody wishes they had more. Discontentment, not that big a deal. I know that the Lord has called me to be content with the things that he's given me and to, to praise him for the food that's on my table and the provision. That, but it's not a big deal that I'm, I'm struggling with utter discontentment in my life. These are small disobediences. Gossip. I mean, who doesn't gossip? Who doesn't get excited about some juicy gossip? Does it really hurt anybody? Is it really that big of a deal? Is it really that I'm, I'm going to bring damage to someone in some way? It's a small disobedience. Those, those sins of, of uh, omission that James talks about, those sins of, of well, I, I didn't pray, but I mean, I, I got a lot going on, right? Or, yeah, I, I really haven't been as faithful to the church as, as I know I should be, but it's, it's not really a big deal. Small disobediences. But what Israel couldn't have understood generations prior, generations prior, was when they left the Philistines to be and did not obey the command of the Lord, that one day their children would be fighting this battle. That one day their children would be standing on the other side of the the ravine, reaping what their parents had sown. What Adam, there's no way Adam could have comprehended when he ate of that fruit that Abel was going to die from it. There's no way he could have comprehended that a disobedience seemingly so small would lead to the curse of all of the earth, would bring about his death and the death of so many more that were to come. I bet you can think in your life, and you can think back, and you thought drunkenness wasn't a big deal, and now it's out of control. And you thought pornography wasn't a big deal, and now it's out of control. No, worse yet, you can look in your, your, your kids' lives, and you can see them beginning to reap the very things that you have sown. And they seem like such small disobediences, things that you could just sow in your life while they were young, and then get your life together later on. But it turns out those small disobediences bring great destruction into your life. Because every small disobedience is a declaration to God, I know a better way than what you know. It actually turns out there's no such thing as a small disobedience because small disobedience is a great declaration against the wisdom and against the sovereignty of God. It is making you the sovereign of your own life. That's how they ended up here in this mess. This was a mess that they had made for themselves. Why were they so afraid though? Pulsating throughout is the fear and the dismay that is enrapturing all of Israel. Why are they so afraid? We have here, this really gets to that promise to believe, right? We have here in our text the, the lengthiest uh, description of a military, of a military uh, foe that we find anywhere in all of the Old Testament. And and we're being given this picture of this great foe, Goliath, so that we can take that and we can compare it to the promise that God has given. God has said, I will go before you. I will drive it out. I will take care of you. I will bring you victory. I'm going to send the angel of the Lord. Now, what's the issue with angels? They're awesome, but you can't really see them. Right? 
They are what God has promised to send, what God has promised to deliver through, but you can't see the angel of the Lord. But you can see this dude. Listen to the description that he's given. A champion named Goliath who was six cubits and a span. There's a discrepancy among scholars that he was either six foot nine inches or he was nine foot nine inches. Okay, But you have to understand that the average height of a man then would have probably been about five foot two. Okay, So he, he, even if he's six foot nine, he's a foot and a half taller than anybody else that's out there. He would have looked like a giant. And if he's ten feet tall, I mean, my goodness, you know, like enough said. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That's roughly 125 pounds of armor. So this is not just a tall, lanky, minute bowl kind of guy. Anybody know who minute bowl is? I didn't expect that reference to pop out in the sermon today. But, but we think about these NBA players that maybe are tall and really lanky. That's not the picture of Goliath. This is a gargantuan man. This is Shaq. You know what I'm saying? This is a monster of a guy. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels. That's like... 15 pounds just on the spearhead. And his shield bearer went before him. And so we're, we're meant to see that what we have in Goliath is an insurmountable enemy. An insurmountable enemy. That if it is going to be one man versus this man, what man can stand up against him? What man will be able to endure? Not only do we see that he's insurmountable, we see that they are the cutting edge of innovation. You have to understand that probably the reason that Israel didn't go and fight the Philistines to start with is that the Philistines were among the most uh, technologically advanced and innovative fighters of their time. First of all, they were sea people, so they had a navy. But then you had, they were among the very first civilizations in all of human history to have bronze. Do you see what's emphasized throughout here? That throughout we have, he had a helmet of bronze. And he had bronze armor. And he had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And this is saying that this is a mighty, innovative warrior. This is, he has the best that technology that money can buy. He's got drone strikes and F-16s. Like, he's got the best of the best. And so the, it's no wonder that they greatly fear and are filled with dismay. What seems to be certain is death, and only death. What seems to be certain for whoever goes up against this man is that they will die. And then because they die, all of the people of Israel will be subjugated. And it is a picture of all of us and our own sin. What our sin brings into our life is certain death and the subjugation and enslavement throughout the entirety of our lives. Do you see this? So the great fear, I mean the great giant ultimately that Israel is fighting is not this man. It's their own disbelief in the promises of God. That God can actually strike down a man like this. That God can actually overcome even a giant the size of Goliath, even certain death, even the subjugation of his people by a more innovative people. You know, I bet in your life, when you think about the messes that are there, I bet they revolve around these two realities. Either the disobedience and or disbelief. Disobedience or disbelief. 
that the reason that we're so overcome with anxiety and so overcome with fear and dismay and despair in our lives is because we have created a mess with our disobedience and we disbelieve God's promises that He is willing and able and ready to overcome our disobedience at His own cost by driving it out if we will place our full confidence in what He has promised through Christ. Brothers and sisters, you've never committed a small disobedience in all of your life. But the hope is, the hope is, is that there is life for all who will believe. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from the great giant of sudden, certain death and subjugation and servanthood to that sin for all of their life because of what God has promised. We've made a big mess and we need a better king. The second conflict that I want to point out is less of a conflict in this particular passage, and it's more of a contrast, but it's certainly going to lead to conflict down the road as we're going to see in future chapters. But it's really this comparison between Saul and David. That the role that this plays in the narrative, in the mind of the author, the reason that that he was putting uh, David and Goliath right there front and center for all of us to see is he wanted us to see the passing of the baton. He's wanting us to see why it is that he has rejected Saul and that he has now anointed David. So that we can see really represented between these two, Saul, he is the king, the kind of king that all of Israel wanted. He is like Goliath. He's a head taller than everybody else. He is impressive and handsome. He is is striking and cunning. He is clever. And so he represents our methods of salvation. He he, he is the very representative of what we choose and how we try to overcome problems and fear and subjugation in our lives. And then there's David, lowly David, who was the last recommendation in his own family. He has the lowest standing in his own family. And here is God elevating him and anointing him to be the ruler of all of Israel. Because he's pointing forward to one. When there was a time a thousand years later in which all of the people of Israel wanted a great military leader who would come and strike down their Roman oppressors, but instead what they received was a baby born in the tiny town of Bethlehem and laid in a manger. That there is a great contrast in our minds as we see in Saul and David between the means of man to be saved and the ways that God sends for us to be saved. See, in Saul, what we begin to see is this self-preservation is, at the fir- is first and foremost in his mind. If you'll look at chapter 17, verses 23 through 26, I think you'll see this contrast when he and David that I'm talking about. So he says, as he taught with them, this, this, is the, this is Goliath, Behold the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel... Now think about all the men of Israel. Who's included in that? That would be Saul too, right? He's a man in Israel. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches. And he will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Here's the point there. 
Saul was the one that was supposed to go and fight Goliath. Saul was Israel's champion. Saul was Israel's giant. Saul was supposed to be the frontline warrior. But Saul isn't even the kind of man that cuts his own grass. He's hiring out the job. He's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to incentivize somebody else to come in and, and be able to do exactly what I'm supposed to do. That, in other words, what, at, the, at the center of Saul's concern is not Israel. At the center of Saul's con- concern is not the defense and protection and deliverance of his people. At the center of Saul's concern is certainly not the glory of the name of his God. Remember, this is essentially a battle between two gods, a religious encounter. At the center of Saul's mind is his own safety, his own preservation. That is, Saul was making himself practically God. That his name be saved. That his life be spared. That he be in front of everyone else. Which is incredible when you stop to think about it for just a second. Goliath is being presented to us as a man more honorable than Saul, the leader and ruler of Israel. Goliath is willing to go and fight for his people. Goliath is willing to fight into the death for his people. Goliath is willing to provide a way out for his people. Goliath believes in his God and that his God, Dagon, is going to deliver him. And he defies the ranks of Israel, which essentially means that he is blaspheming the name of the living God, saying that their God will not deliver them and they will not be able to be victorious and he will not drive them out and that he will not be able to keep his promises. And so we have him, and and you have this picture of this man, and he's more honorable than Saul because at least he's stating outright exactly what he believes, and he's really believing it. What you have in Saul is a man who says with lip service that he is a follower of God, that he is devoted to the Lord, that he is going to honor God with his life. He is with lip service that he's there for the good of his people and the protection of the nation. With lip service, but practically in his life, he is actually a blasphemer, living as though he does not believe in God, does not believe in God's promises, and believes only in what he can see, not what God has said. And remember what we read at the beginning of the service from Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea. It brings into our minds what Jesus has said. Either be hot or cold. Because if you are lukewarm, if you pay lip service to me, but deny me with your life, if you live practically as an atheist and practically as a blasphemer, it is worse for you than if you were like Goliath and blaspheming me outright. Contrast that with David. Look at what it says in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He's concerned with Israel. You see this? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And there comes the theme of David's pronouncement throughout 1 Samuel chapter 17. That David is not concerned with his own safety. And David is not concerned with his own name. And David is not concerned with the first and foremost how things are going to go with him. David is concerned with the glory of God. That the glory of God's name be made famous. That the glory of God's name be held up. Up through the keeping of his promises. Do you see the contrast? 
between a king who lives for himself and a king who has a heart, who is after God's own heart? That's the contrast. And I ask you, what describes you, brothers and sisters? Is your life defined by a practical atheism and a practical blasphemy where you pay lip service to God and put Bible verses on your Facebook but deny Him in the way that you actually live? Or is it described where it is not about personal safety, it is not about self-preservation, instead it is about a life wholly devout unto the Lord for the glory of His own name among the nations and among the peoples and among all of Calhoun, Etowah, and uh, Randolph County. What describes you? It's not the only contrast we see there, though. We see a contrast between Saul's focusing on David's limitations, while at the same time, David is focused on God's capabilities. Saul focuses on David's limitations. David focuses on God's, on God's capabilities. Look at what it says in verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, the very first thing he says, look what he says, you are not able to go against the Philistine, to fight with him. For you are a youth, you're just a boy. And he has been a man of war from his youth. He's too strong. Do you see what he said? The very first thing that Saul thought when he looked at David, he says, this isn't going to work. There's no way this guy can beat that guy. And you know what? He was right. He was right. There was no way David could beat him. It made no sense for David to go up against the great Goliath. Goliath was clearly going to just wipe David from the face of the earth. Except for what David knew. That David wasn't going there to fight Goliath. David was going there as a representative of the one who was going to fight Goliath. Listen to what David says. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies, there it is again, of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion. This is actually the same word. And the paw of the bear is the hand. So it really could be the hand of the lion and the hand of the bear and the hand of this Philistine will deliver me up. This is what he said. I have seen what the Lord will do. I know we see the giant and the giant looks big. I know we see what causes us fear and dismay in this day and it is overwhelming to us. I know it appears that the enemy of death and sin is too big for you brothers and sisters and that you're carrying your guilt and your shame and what hope do you have? You are just a little boy. You are just worthless. Except, except there is one that is greater than you that has committed to you, that loves you, that will be with you, who is tested and true, who has delivered you yesterday and the day before that and the day before that, who chose you before the foundations of the earth, who now, he says in Romans chapter 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? You see, this wasn't about David's limitations. This was about God's capabilities. This was about God's promises. This was about God's might and God's power 
This was about God's glory and God's name and God's people. This was about God's salvation. What describes you? How do you live? Do you live in fear and dismay over your own limitations, over your own fear, over your own guilt, over your own shame? Or do you live a life set free by the truth of God's unending capabilities? That God has said through Christ, all who call on my name are in me and I am in them. And that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I know, I know you can't see it. You see problems. You see the giant that is standing in front of you. You see your own weakness loud and clear. You know your own limitations better than I could even describe them. You know all of this and there is one that you cannot see. But I am telling you, brothers and sisters, he is for you. He is ferociously for you. And he has delivered you from the lion. He has delivered you from the bear. And he will deliver you from the giant. One final contrast we see. Saul and David. Verse 38, it says, Then Saul clothed them. So Saul says, I have an idea. I have an idea. How many people have died right after that sentence, right? Those are famous last words. I have an idea. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and he clothed him with a coat of mail. Listen to verse 39. David strapped his sword over his armor and tried in vain to go where he had not tested them. That's completely opposite of what he had just said of the Lord, isn't it? He tested the Lord. He had seen what the Lord could do. He saw that the Lord would back up his promises time and again. But this man's way... The sword and the armor and all that, man's ideas, it doesn't work. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. It is human nature to respond to the troubles that we face, thinking that all we really need is a good idea. All we really need is a better idea. If we can just have some new ingenuity, if we can just discover some new innovation, if we can just figure out some other alternate way, surely we can get ourselves out of this mess that we have built up for ourselves. So that's, that's what Saul's doing. We look at death and these decaying bodies that we have, and you know what we think? I have an idea. I'll eat organic, and I'll exercise more, and I'll, I'll make sure that I'm you know, eating clean, and I'll stave off I'll take all the vitamins that GNC sells, and I'll stave off the decay of this body, except it just decays anyway. It just decays anyway. We think about the, the guilt and the shame that we carry along with us every single day from things that we've done or things that we've wanted to do and didn't do. But we know our hearts and we carry forward the guilt and the shame that comes along with the association of realizing our own limitations and our own depravity. And what we think is, is I will fight back the suffering and the anguish in my own soul and I will prove that I am tougher than all of this. And I will portray myself as being strong and stoic while I unravel on the inside, right? See, all of our ideas are futile, brothers and sisters. Our ideas are futile. The hope that we have is not in having another idea. The hope that we have is that the promises of God are actually true. That Christ has actually come. That death has actually been defeated. 
that sin has actually been overcome, that our future has actually been secured. That's the hope that we have. But what are you living more according to this morning? Are you living by your own ideas and by your own man-made devices for salvation? Or are you living totally and utterly convinced of the promises of God? Oh, oh brothers and sisters, we're not David in this story. We're not David in this story. We need David. We need David. We need a better king than what we would choose to come and deliver us from our subjugation to sin and death. We need a greater king who will overcome the power of sin and the penalty of sin in our lives. We need a king that will overcome all of our bad ideas and all of our self-destructive tendencies. A king who will allow us to be delivered not by our might and not by our ingenuity and not by our strength, but by his glory and goodness and grace and might. We need him to come and to slay the giant in our life. No, we're not David. We're Israel. We need David. That brings me to my final point this morning. We made a big mess and we need a better king. I want you to see the big, you see the big story, the trace of the big story here? And we're saved by a bigger giant. We're saved by a bigger giant. What if I told you that we've always called this the wrong thing? We've given this story the wrong title. We always call this David versus Goliath. And I've had football coaches back when I was a youth pastor. John, you may have this experience. When I was a youth pastor, there'd be some team going up against a great, mighty, defending state champion. The coach would call me, you know, youth pastor, I want you to, come, I want you to tell the story of David and Goliath, right? This is the story of the underdog against the, the big, mighty, strong opponent. But that's not how the people of Israel would have understood it. This is not David versus Goliath. It's certainly not the way David understands it. This is God versus Goliath. There's an underdog in this story, but it's not David. It's Goliath. The only way Goliath isn't the underdog is if you don't believe in God. No, no, this is a story about a man who thought he was bigger and stronger than what he actually was, but he came up against a God who would crush him like an ant. Listen to the speech that David gives. The, the, the picture is Goliath has just given this great speech and he has said that by his God he will slay David and he will take out the people of Israel, he will subjugate them. Look at, listen to how David responds. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied and blasphemed. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Not David's name being great, the name of the God of Israel being great, and that all assembly may know that the Lord saves nothing. Not with sword and spear. That's human ingenuity. That's a human idea. For the battle is not David's. The battle is the Lord's. And he will give you, just like he said in Exodus 33, remember? He will give you into our hands. Do you see the picture? David says, I'll fight you. 
because I don't have to fight. I'll go against you because I don't have to be strong. I know I will come out victorious because I serve the living God, the God of Israel. And he will come and he will make his name great and he will make his name great at the expense of those who come and oppose him. There's three different lights. I want you to see this because I think all scripture should be interpreted this way. There's three different lights that we need to shine on 1 Samuel 17 to really understand it. First, this is a personal story. This is David's story. But it's not just David's story. We stop short right there. That's how we get into moralism. It's not just David's story. This is a national story. That's another light that we need to shine on this, right? This is Israel's story. This is the story of of how God is going to preserve his people. And this is certainly a historic event in the life of Israel. But we can't stop there because this is not just Israel's story. This is redemptive history too. Personal history, national history, redemptive history. That this is a picture for us of how God saves of how God works in the lives of his people throughout this world, that he might deliver them over from their own mess, that he might raise up for them a better king than what they would have chosen, that they can be delivered, that this isn't just Israel's story and David's story. Y'all, this is our story. I thought it would be best to illustrate this with a famous painting because I think this is so powerful, the picture. I want you to have in your mind Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're, we're landing the plane right here. Genesis 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 15. It's what we call the Proto-Evangelium. It's the very first gospel presentation found in all the scriptures. And you'll remember what, what God says. He says that he is going to, that the seed of the woman, that the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And it is the promise from God that he is going to send one to earth who ultimately will crush the head of the serpent. So I want you to think about this picture for just a second. I think this artist nails it. All right, do you see the armor right here? Think about it. It was a coat of mail. What does that look like? It looks like scales. You were much quicker on that than I expected, by the way. It looks like scales. What does a nine-foot, nine-inch man look like? A monster. You have a, a reptilian monster who is standing here defying the God of Israel, covered in scales from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, believing that he is impenetrable, that he is insurmountable, that he is going to be undefeated. Does that sound like the serpent of Genesis chapter 3? Except God sends a lowly servant to go and to strike him down. And then, do you know what he does? He goes and he removes Goliath's own sword out of its sheath. And he cuts and lops off the head of the giant. And he holds it up before all of Israel. Now let me ask you, what is the serpent's greatest weapon? Death. Death. How does Jesus defeat death? With death. He pulls from the servant's sheath his very own sword, death, and he lops off the head of the serpent, crushing it one final time. 
brothers and sisters, this is not about a shepherd boy versus a big man. This is about a great God crushing our sin and our hopelessness and our dismay and our despair. This is not about you winning football games and this is not about you lifting new weights or getting that job promotion. This is about you being set free from having to live under the subjugation and servanthood of slavery. This is about you being able to live free from the fear of death forever. This is about you making all of those other things, all the football games in the world and all the job promotions in the world and all the prosperity in the world. It makes it utterly irrelevant because now if you believe this, if you stand in the courts of the living God, you live forever. You live forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is about a bigger story that's being told. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.